Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Welcome to the unknown, reads a line from the very cryptic bio of Wes Kensington, the new collaborative debut from harpist Mary Lattimore and guitarist Paul Sukina. Written by Sukina's wife, Nikki Devine, the blurb is a smudged roadmap to a foggy, atmospheric record. Lattimore and Sukina met in Philadelphia, where they both lived for well over a decade, operating in concentric professional circles before moving, independently, to Los Angeles, Lattimore in 2018 and Sukina the following year. By the time shelter-in-place orders arrived, Serendipity had placed them in the same two-unit building, practicing their respective crafts on opposite sides of a shared wall. With the outside world off-limits, they started jamming together, and as these free-flowing sessions coagulated, songs were born. First 2020's Dreaming of the Kelly Pool, and then the six tracks that comprise their new record, out tomorrow via three-lobed recordings. West Kensington is not a pandemic record in theme, but the liminality of those early COVID days leaked through the cracks. Track names like Hundred Dollar Hoagie and Garage Wine, which bookend the LP, address the fundamental absurdity of life in lockdown, contextualizing the music's haunting malaise without undermining it. Didn't See the Comet, though, is perhaps the project's most perfect song title. So much space, so much reach, and so far. So much weight hanging in the dark sky, Divine writes in her bio. And the reasons we missed the comet, and why, become the moments we remember most, she writes. In early May, an hour before Lattimore left LA to embark on a five-week European tour, the Fader's Raphael Helfand spoke with her and Sukina about how friendship, Friday Night Lights, and Flaming Cherry's Jubilee contributed to their gorgeous new record. Mary Lattimore and Paul Sukina, welcome to the Fader interview. Totally. Thanks so much for asking us. Yeah, absolutely. This is sort of like the epitome of a quarantine album, from what I understand. You're stuck at home during lockdown. You realize your neighbors and both professional musicians who ran in somewhat overlapping circles in Philly. Were you familiar with each other's work beforehand? Oh, yeah. Philly's such a small town. And yeah, I guess the term overlap is kind of putting it lightly. You know, collaborate with a lot of the same people. We run in the same crews, you know? Before we get into L.A., uh, which is obviously like a whole other beast, can you talk about the musical settings you both grew up in and how Philly differed from them both? Paul, I know you grew up two hours outside Philly, but I imagine that scene in uh, in Mechanicsburg was vastly different. Yes, it's vastly different. Mechanicsburg is a fairly typical small town in the middle of central PA, which has politically like a galaxy away from Philly or Pittsburgh. You know, it's a pretty conservative area. It's very like bucolic and quaint. And it was great growing up there and hiking and stuff and you know, getting into the outdoors or whatever. But like, as far as bands go, we were really obsessed with the dead and indie rock and stuff. I was in like a jam band with my friends. That term is like very loose. We just sit in a basement and get high and play for hours and hours and hours. And so even though there was like 
pretty like rudimentary or elementary or whatever that sort of like laid out the carpet for how I would sort of approach music for the rest of my life, really. There's always been like a maybe like an improvisational element to what I do. Mary, let's move on to to you. Tell me a little about growing up in Asheville, like playing the harp. And I know your, your mom was like a, the, the harpist for the Asheville Symphony Orchestra, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she was the harpist with the Asheville Symphony for like 35 years. I grew up listening to a lot of classical music, but then also like classic rock kind of stuff. My family moved to another, a smaller town when I was in middle school. So there I uh, played with the high school orchestra, the Charlotte Youth Symphony, stuff like that, you know, just getting into playing classical music, but like listening to a lot of like The Cure and R.E.M. And then I went to music school for classical harp performance. It was cool. It gave me like a foundation for what I do now, like technically and like just learning how to hold my hands the right way and learning how to play really fast and learning how to play like emotively and sensitively. I think it was a really important time. And then I moved to Philly in 2005 and that's where I got to know a lot of our mutual friends and started playing on other people's records, like session work style but more like friends style session work I would say that my improvisation I was slow to learn how to improvise I had to do some unlearning from my classical music background in order to be free enough to improvise so that was like something that I learned when I was living Philly was like there are no wrong notes basically so you moved to LA a few years ago, uh, Mary and Paul, you got there not too long before the pandemic hit after like living in the Philly area for pretty much your whole life, right? Yeah, correct. I lived in Philly for like 14 or 15 years. And then my wife is from California. It was sort of an inevitable shift. So we landed in LA in January, 2019. Spent like most of that year, just kind of like meeting people and getting used to the city and get my bearings and then we rehearsed the angels and record on yours like for most of that 2019 and then hit the road that fall so i had a weird kind of like first year in la i was like kind of in and out people say that it takes two years to kind of really find your footing there my second year was unfortunately a little absent because of the pandemic but still made made sure to have a good time i imagine spring 2020 I mean, as it was for everyone, but especially must have been pretty devastating for you after like uprooting from where you'd lived most of your whole life to get more work as a guitarist and then having there be no work. Sure. Yeah. Also, like spending most of the year rehearsing this record and we got a few tours in. We were probably one of the last bands to really like complete their Euro tour before everything kind of hit the fan. We were just there and it felt like it was kind of nipping at our heels a little bit, you know. And then we managed to get back and shortly thereafter, obviously all came crashing down. This is like a story that so many people have gone through and experienced. So I don't need to rehash it, but you know, it's like, I'm more like lamenting the, like we were supposed to play Willie Nelson's ranch like that week, you know, and then it didn't happen, but it's all good. Things change, you know, and if it hadn't happened, then maybe Mary and I wouldn't have had the time to collaborate together. Yeah, that's for sure. It was such a relaxed environment to make a record. We were just kind of like, oh, do you want to like have a coffee at 11? And then maybe like set up the mics and just kind of, 
maybe just record for a little bit and then go out to the yard. It was like really luxurious. Like not even putting on real clothes. Yeah. We recorded in my living room actually. And we just set everything up in my living room, which is pretty open. We have been doing these sort of sound bath collaborations for a friend who hired us for his company. It was for Nike actually. And it was during early lockdown Friday evenings for the designers to kind of chill out after a day of working. So we did like an hour of improvisation every Friday for a while. So we were kind of used to playing together at that point. And so we were like, let's work on the record on a record. And as Paul said, we did it really, really casually, like his wife, Nikki would make beautiful pasta for us. And you know, we drink a lot of wine. And to me, it doesn't like the point of this record really isn't like a pandemic record as much as like a record documenting our time as neighbors and friends living in the same house, you know, so I really don't like to think about like, oh, this is our pandemic record as much as this is like a story of our friendship in a way. You know what I mean? The first song you released together is Dreaming of the Kelly Pool, which is an ode to like this idyllic public space in Philly's Fairmount Park. Was that pool like your shared vision of utopia in those early lockdown days, you know, followed by like the, the political turmoil of the summer? That's a very beautiful way to put it. I think so. We just both really love this public pool that is so dreamy in Philly. And it's a little bit of a secret. You know, there's beautiful green grass all around this pool. And it's like an Olympic sized pool, I think. And it's just like a happy place for both of us. So exactly. Yeah, we just decided to make this ode to it. Even though the songs obviously don't have like specific subject matter. I feel like they're just trying to conjure like a memory or like a sense memory of something. We're talking about the Kelly Poo song, obviously, but like, even though the record is not, we don't really consider it a pandemic record. I think it still captures a specific mood. You know, yeah, the Kelly Poo was like kind of the first moment we're like, oh, cool. Like, this does conjure like a really specific memory for both of us. And having that as kind of like a jumping off point or just like a mental image to sort of like base whatever you're playing off of is a pretty cool exercise, I think. I loved like it's just like imagining that the title of the thing is the almost the exercise, you know.
so $100 Hoagie, first off, great title. Uh, <laughs> the track seems to nod to uh, sci-fi scores, and I'm thinking like specifically of Vangelis or, you know, more recently, like what, what Daniel Lopatin has done with like non-sci-fi soundtracks. But um, I feel like it exists in this sort of like dystopian future, and maybe this is a stretch, but it's a future where uh, mass inflation has really rendered the price of Hoagie's uh, $100. Um <laughs> Am I onto anything here? I love this interpretation. That's the best we could hope for. Like, that's a very beautiful interpretation of this song. Who knew that we were prophets looking into the future? There's a hoagie place in San Francisco. And I'm not trying to knock anybody's business or anything, but the hoagies are like $24, which is like, we're a quarter of the way to $100 hoagie right now. It's not It's not looking good. <laughs> yeah, the title came from... A surprise package that that Nikki and I received. Our friends sent us like two cheesesteaks and two hoagies in the mail, and we got them. And we opened this box, and we had like called Mary over. We're like, Mary, you got to come over. You got to look at this. <laughs> there was like this styrofoam box, and we like unboxed it, and there were just hoagies inside of it. And we were all like on the verge of tears. It was pretty incredible. It was, so, it was like right in the beginning of the pandemic, and we were like, oh my god. <laughs> they had been shipped from Campos in Philly. Thanks, Jill and Devin, for the $100. And thanks to you guys for sharing it with me. That's like a very precious gift. I know there's harp on this track, but it's hard to pick out like specific harp sounds. What synths and pedal effects are you both using here? And Mary, I know that you've used a, a, a Moog Theremini in the past. Do I hear that on this track? Nope. I was babysitting some synths from my friend Francis. He was going out of town in his apartment was didn't have AC and he was worried about the synths being too hot in his empty place. So he was like, would you like to babysit him and you can play him? And so I had a couple of different synths and I really wanted to make this record not have very much harp on it at all and kind of get more exploratory with synthesizers. And like I did end up adding some harp, but it's just started out with basically guitar and synth. I don't remember exactly which ones we had in the we had like a Juno and a couple other ones. This one called the Insonic. Yeah, that one was amazing. It sounded like the Cure. But yeah, those were kind of the jumping off points, I think. We would just kind of like plug in and we mentioned kind of the mood of making the record was like very low key and a really mellow approach. We weren't like trying for anything specific. So it was more just kind of like finding a sound and then, you know, we were recording the whole time and just kind of like go off with it. And then I would try to find like complementary sounds or dissonant sounds, you know, depending on like whatever the mood was at the moment. I built kind of like a Mondo pedal board situation and they kept adding things to it because it's, you know, you're like at home. So you build your like David Gilmore rig, giant spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) So I have like all these pedal boards, like kind of daisy chained together. I really love this company called Red Panda. They're out of Detroit and they just make like really idiosyncratic, futuristic pedals that do really weird stuff. I remember going to visit them on tour one time and she was like explaining like the concepts behind them and I was just kind of like staring at her like, whoa, this is like really far out. But anyways, I used one of their pet pedals pretty exclusively that I'm using in a very like root of, it, it's meant to do like really crazy extrapolated like pitch shifting wild sounds, but I'm just using it almost as like a reverse delay. And that's that's sound is like all over the record.
Next up, we've got Flaming Cherries Jubilee at Antoine's, which goes on with, with this food theme that's starting to be established. Um, I know of Antoine's as the oldest restaurant in New Orleans, which is where I used to live. Is there a different Antoine's in Philly or elsewhere that you're specifically referring to? No, that was... I just wrote that title down in a notebook, and I was like, okay, let's try to use that, because I had met this older man sitting at a counter, like at a diner somewhere, I think. He just started talking to me. You know, he's one of those guys that just talks to random strangers. And he started talking to me and he was telling me about when he was a kid, his parents took him to Antoine's for Flaming Cherry's Jubilee. And I just love that image of like, you know, Flaming Cherry's Jubilee. It just sounded so beautiful at Antoine's. You know, it kind of goes along with the escape route, like the, you know, using music as an escape from this, the outside world, you know, the bad stuff outside, just like dreaming about going to New Orleans and trying out the Flaming Cherries Jubilee, dreaming about the pandemic being over and getting to travel again and try new things and all that. Mary, you mentioned in an alter of Tammy press release, I think, you guys were both watching a lot of Friday Night Lights during the making of this record. To me, though, uh, Flaming Cherries, I think, is where I hear the most, like, explosions in the sky on this record. Were they on the mood board at all, would you say? No. (laughs) I mean, maybe subconsciously, we were watching a ton of Friday Night Lights, like, one more episode. Yeah, one more episode. Let's do it. Two more episodes. They're not even on the, who is it? It's W.G. Snuffy Walden. Was the guy that did this the TV show? He did the West Wing. I always assumed that that was the that was an explosion in the sky theme. I mean, because the movie, but wow. W. G. Snuffy Walden was really the yeah he was really the main focus. <laughs> Listening to a lot of that those days. <laughs> we should collaborate with him. You said Altar of Tammy, to quote you, captures the dark spirit of the time, waking up to a life with no form, drinking again in the same room every night, illuminated only by red light. The world was telling us to stop. So that seems like a very also like sci-fi dystopian sort of sadness, which I do hear on the track. Um, to whatever extent you're both comfortable, uh, can you talk about how like your states of mind change over the course of you know, lockdown and West Kensington's recording process and uh, like how mental, mental health played into the record. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't mind talking about it at all. It was like an insane moment, you know, family's far away. Your job is hung up for the foreseeable future. You have no idea what's going to happen, you know? And at the same time, you have this like feeling like guilty about having all the luxury of time and like what do i do with it and all this stuff yeah i don't know it's just we're in we're all in a wild place i felt really like very much like my life like stopped and then we were kind of like in this i was like looking back at my life almost like i wasn't really in it or something 
And I felt like it was like in a like a snow globe or it was in like a little like diorama and I was just kind of like above it looking at it and I couldn't access it. That that kind of dictated like a lot of my mental process. And we just kind of, you know, I just tried to stay busy and try to play every day and socialize with Mary and take walks and hikes and stuff like that. Yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> it's not a good time. No. It was bad. It was a profound sadness. Just like it just was so heavy. And also just feeling like live music was never going to come back. It felt that way. I am on tour like 200 days out of the year usually. And so just having that kind of like lack of purpose and just feeling really just insignificant. I'm, you know, I'm sure that everybody felt that way. But you know, not being able to, to do our jobs, it just felt really brutal. Glad to be back at it. bio for the album the comet is a metaphor for like a moment in time that you often think about more in terms of like why you missed it and what was happening more than the actual event itself it could easily be read like in the covid context of this record as like an apocalyptic image of a meteor in a time capsule sense I think West Kensington could maybe be thought of as like memories from the apocalypse is that a perspective you're playing with at all here I mean definitely you know that was like a waking like thought every day (laughs) like how bad is this actually going to get how wild like what is going to happen you know i don't think it's like an apocalypse or like end of the world centric record i think that that idea is definitely feathered into the overall like vibe and feeling of it but what do you think there i got way more afraid of aliens coming during the pandemic but i've always been a little bit afraid of them but i just had this you know there are a lot of reports about alien sightings and stuff by you know documents being released you guys remember that like in the news they're talking about oh yeah we're going to release these papers that talk about alien i don't know weird weird ships being seen by the military and stuff and so i just got really afraid that they would come down and not be benevolent and not be adorable (laughs) And like, it would just be another thing, another out of control thing that would happen because, you know, it was thing after thing and we could, we had no control over it and we had no idea what would happen next around the bend. And so I was like, okay, let's just add this. And along with like earthquakes and stuff too, that we were having, I was like, okay, what's, what's next? It's going to be like an alien invasion. (laughs) They're going to like take advantage of our moment of collective moment of vulnerability or something. Like, oh, great. Now we have aliens to deal with. (laughs) Whatever. Take me away. (laughs) Let's go.
at the time Julian landed softly uh, as I guess actually the, the second to last track we're down to the last two tracks they both feel to me happier than the than the first four songs in the record and this one in particular like like the like sort of like the big arpeggios that started off like they feel like kind of like exuberant was it like chronological based on process or was it like just like you felt you know during sequencing that like this part of the album like would have more of a sense of arrival I don't know if it was intentional I think Maybe Corey from Three Lobe kind of helped us with the sequencing. And maybe that was just his um, thought as a person who didn't make the music, but was a listener, you know? So he helped us with that, I think, Paul, right? Yeah, absolutely. He he more or less decided, you know, he threw a couple of sequences at us and we sort of, you know, listened through independently and then came back with notes. And that analysis definitely makes sense. It, you know, it's like kind of this reverse bell curve of, you know, it goes into the darkness and kind of like out of it again. What was like the general order of the of the recording of these songs? Oh, I do not remember at all. There are also a lot more tracks, like these six tracks. This is probably like a third or half of what we actually recorded. We have a bunch of other stuff. These seemed like kind of the most coherent, cohesive, you know, like some of them are really, you know, just really sketchy. We were just hanging out, kind of like seeing what's stuck. These, these felt like kind of the most fleshed out or something like that. So the last song is Garage Wine. Julianne was like really like this exuberant sort of arrival. Garage Wine felt more like sort of like a subdued like acceptance. And you know, even like the title, just sort of like something that you would do during a lockdown would be drink wine in your garage. Once you'd come to terms with the fact that you're going to be there for a while, is that sort of the state of mind that that song came from? It's similar. Yeah, but it's actually about making wine. We made some garage wine. Our friend Nick Fisher, who owns a bar in LA called El Prado, a dear friend of all of ours. He had like a little space where he was making wine and he needed us. He got kicked out of it and needed a space. So we, Nikki and I offered our garage. And so throughout most of the pandemic, we've aged this Syrah in our garage. And um, one day we, we packaged it towards you know, the middle of the pandemic. We kind of like broke the pod, pod packed and had Nick come over and we bottled it and stuff. And it was actually like a really nice, it was such a nice day. It was like really beautiful out and it felt nice to just hang out with someone we haven't seen in a while and just sit around listening to music and packaging, you know, these bottles of wine and these beautiful purple red wine and these like beautiful blue bottles that he had. Maybe it's more about like the aging and the long, the long process of, you know, what the wine goes through and changing or something like that. Maybe might just be a memory. well thank you so much for having us really great talking to you i have to finish packing i'm going on a five-week tour today yeah when are you leaving in an hour or so so i gotta finish packing (laughs) (laughs) you know this is what i always do running out the door still packing thank you so much for making time then yeah thanks for having us Raphael. 
That was Mary Lattimore and Paul Sukina talking to The Faders' Raphael Helfand. Lattimore and Sukina's new album, West Kensington, is out tomorrow, May 20, via Three Load. This week's episode of The Fader Interview was engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, AMP. Download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FaderOnAMP. That's all one word. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.